In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul paints a dismal picture of the human condition. After declaring that the invisible attributes of God, His eternal power and His divine nature have been visible upon the canvas of creation and have been clearly perceived by men ever since the creation of the world, that's Romans 1, 19 and 20, Paul goes on to say that man has suppressed this untruth or this truth in unrighteousness and that to disastrous effect. Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor did they give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Refusing to honor, worship, and give thanks to the God whose existence and whose power is so clearly evident in creation, man instead has turned to the worship of images. Turning away from the true light, man has begun to worship dim reflections. In consequence, God has given them over to darkness and to depravity. And now, man cannot see his hand in front of his face, as it were. Now, in our Western, modern, sophisticated age, we no longer, usually, bow before idols of wood and stone. Instead, we've turned to worship ourselves. And nowhere is this more evident than in the philosophical worldviews that have arisen in the West over the last 300 years. Since the late 18th century, the prevailing worldview in Western culture is what is known as naturalism. According to James Sire, who is a Christian philosophy professor from the University of Missouri, naturalism rests upon six foundational propositions. Number one, matter exists eternally and is all there is. What we're doing here, we're going through six propositions of the prevailing worldview of our culture. This is what most people that you will run into believe. Matter exists eternally and is all there is. In other words, God does not exist. Number two, the cosmos exists as a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. There is no such thing as supernatural. Everything which occurs, occurs according to fixed and immutable laws of matter. Number three, human beings are complex machines. Personality and feelings are merely the interrelation of chemical and physical properties that we do not yet fully understand. Number four, death is the extinction of personality and individuality. In other words, this life is all there is and there is nothing else. Number five, history is a linear stream of events linked by cause and effect with no overarching purpose. There is no design and history is heading in no purposeful direction. And number six, ethics is related only to human beings. There is no objective standard of morality Good is defined as what is approved by the community and promotes the survival of the whole. Now you can see how naturalism appeals to the human impulse exposed by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. In a naturalistic world, there is no God to honor or worship or give thanks. The cosmos is a closed system that can be examined and understood and eventually mastered by humanity. In essence, as the most highly evolved species of which we know, we are becoming gods over the rest of the universe and masters of our own evolution. Finally, we determine our own morality and we are accountable to none but ourselves. What more could man want? Well, 
it did not take long for the euphoria of naturalism to wear off, and many who took its propositions to their natural conclusions began to feel their devastating effect. As it turns out, being nothing more than a complex machine comprised of matter with thoughts and feelings that are nothing other than chemical processes, living a purposeless life in a purposeless universe, just a tiny blip on the timeline of a purposeless history heading toward no greater end than death is not the most emotionally satisfying of outlooks. This suffocating sense of purposelessness, meaninglessness, has driven many to despair, and out of this despair has arisen a worldview known as nihilism, which simply means nothingism. Nihilism is not so much a worldview as the felt despair arising from a naturalistic, purposeless universe. James Sire writes, quote, For a growing number of people, the results of reason are not so assured. The closed universe is confining. The notion of death as extinction is psychologically disturbing. Our position as the highest of creation is seen either as an alienation from the universe or as a union with it such that we are no more valuable than a pebble on a beach. In fact, pebbles live longer. This nihilistic outlook of modern culture is probably best seen in its art. For instance, there is Samuel Beckett's play entitled Breath. Imagine paying for a ticket to this one. It's a 35-second drama with no actors. On stage, there is a pile of trash lit by a light that slowly dims, then brightens, then dims again, and finally goes out. There is a beginning recorded cry, and then there is an, a long inhaled breath, and then there is an exhaled breath, and a final concluding cry. The point, it's all life is. It's all we are. A pile of trash on a stage, lit, illuminated, darkened, gone. Such is life. Or there's John Updike's vision of death in his short story, Pigeon Feathers. Quote, Without warning, David was visited by an exact vision of death. A long hole in the ground, no wider than your body, down which you were drawn while the white faces recede. You try to reach them, but your arms are, are pinned. Shovels pour dirt in your face. And there you will be forever in an upright position, blind and silent. And in, no, and in time, no one will remember you and you will never be called. As strata of rock shift, your fingers elongate and your teeth are distended sideways in a great underground grimace, indistinguishable from a strip of chalk. And the earth tumbles on and the sun expires and unfaltering darkness reigns where once there were stars. How's that for a future? Or there is Douglas Adams' The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the novels that came from it in which hyper-intelligent beings build a giant computer called Deep Thought in order to answer the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. Adams writes, for seven and a half million years, Deep Thought computed and calculated and in the end announced that the answer was in fact 42. And so another, even bigger computer had to be built to find out what the actual question was. This, this pervasive nihilistic despair, James Sire calls the natural child of naturalism. It is the logical conclusion of naturalistic evolution. There is no design, there is no purpose, there is no meaning, there is no hope, and there is no point. There is nothing. All of us are like John Lennon's Nowhere man, sitting in our nowhere land, making all our nowhere plans for nobody. It is no wonder modern man is so depressed. See, there, there is a cost to suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But what is the truth? Are we complex machines, the result of 
millions upon millions of years of evolution, just the slow accumulation of random mutations driven by natural selection? Is there no design, is there no purpose, and therefore is there no point? Well, that is not the biblical worldview, which says that man is the special creation of God directly and uniquely created in his very own image and therefore possessing a dignity and a purpose that surpasses every other creature in the universe. Created, in the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, to this one great and glorious end, that we might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And as we shall see, this has profound implications on some of the most pressing ethical questions of our day. This morning, my aim is to examine the creation of man from Genesis 1 and 2. And there are two passages in particular that will demand our attention this morning. The first is Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And then we have the parallel account in Genesis 2-7, which we'll cover in the weeks to come. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. So from those two parallel passages, we can draw out four conclusions, four important truths regarding us, regarding man. The first truth is simply this, we were created. This is the clear affirmation of the biblical text. We did not evolve through the accumulation of random mutations driven by natural selection over the course of millions upon millions of ages. We were, are not descended from earlier life forms nor ascended from lower life forms. Man was directly, specially created by God as the climax of his creative work. This simple yet profoundly important truth is displayed in four ways in these texts. I'm going to point them out to you. Number one, man is distinguished from the rest of creation by the sudden change in language. See, throughout Genesis chapter 1, the, the new phases of creation or preparation have been initiated by the Word of God rather impersonally. Let there be. Let there be and there was. Let the earth bring forth, and it did. But when it comes to man, God becomes intensely personal. Let us make. Let us form. God reaches down into the dust of the earth and lovingly, personally, intimately forms man. We were not made by divine fiat. What does that mean? Let there be and there was. We were crafted by the hand of God. Second, in verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's a sudden change. We'll cover what it means to be created in the image of God in the last point of today's message. But for now, I want you to notice that this is said of no other creature. Every other living thing was created according to its kind. Verse 21, verse 24, verse 25. <coughs> Excuse me. Meaning that God, God created everything else 
all other living creatures he created within their respective families or genera. You remember the taxonomy, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, and we, we said that the word, the Hebrew word men or kind is, is, is somewhere between genus and family, right? Every creature was created according to its kind, its own kind, its own design, its own family tree that would come from it. All species of animal life are distinct from one another, created according to their kind, but they are all related in that they are all animals. But not so with man. Man is different. Man, the Hebrew word is Adam, Adam. Man is made in God's image after God's likeness. So even though we are comprised of the same chemicals and proteins and amino acids and elements as the rest of the animal kingdom, and even though we share similarities with other mammals in our digestive and reproductive and musculoskeletal and cardiopulmonary systems and other physical systems, theologically speaking, we are more like God than animals by virtue of our creation in God's image and His likeness. Third, in other words, we're of a different kind, men, than the rest of the animal world. Third, in verse 27, Moses fairly hammers this point home, employing a threefold repetition of the Hebrew word barah, create. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Francis Schaeffer wrote, quote, It is as though God put exclamation points here to indicate that there is something special about the creation of man. And fourth, it's displayed in the beautifully personal language of Genesis 2.7. Then the Lord God formed from the dust of the ground man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. Listen to the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner on this verse. He says two verbs in this verse balance one another. Formed expresses the relation of the craftsman to material with implications of both skill and sovereignty, which man forgets at his peril. While breathed is warmly personal, it has a, a face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as of making and self-giving at that, end quote. Genesis 2-7 calls to mind John chapter 20 and verse 22 when after the resurrection of Jesus, he gathered together with his disciples in the upper room and he commissioned them. And then it says in John 20-22, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And this newborn church was breathed into existence and became a living soul. The creation of man is intensely personal. It is the imparting to us of God's own breath, His own image. So Adam was the direct special creation of God without ancestor and without predecessor. It appears from the biblical text that Adam was created within the last 10,000 years, depending on how tightly or loosely you view the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 10. His recent creation, relatively speaking, is evidenced by, I just want you to look at Genesis 4 with me. Put your eyes over on Genesis 4. The domestication of plants and animals, Genesis 4.2 and 4.20. Number two, the building of cities, Genesis 4.17. Number three, the working of metals, 
There's no stone age here. Genesis 4.22. And number four, the creation of art, music, and culture. Genesis 4.21. Furthermore, genetic research reveals that all human beings may be traced back to an original pair. And all this raises a question that needs to be answered, and I promised my kids that I would answer it this morning, and then spring break came and we shipped them off to grandma's house. Amen. What about the cavemen? What about all of those human-like predecessors that we hear about dating back three and a half to four million years? What about Homo erectus, and what about Neanderthal man, and what about Cro-Magnon man? Well, let's deal with that as best as we can. For those of us who, for the reasons I stated five weeks ago in the introductory sermon to our study of Genesis, for those of us who reject evolutionary theory and embrace the biblical text as the infallible, authoritative, divinely inspired, historical historically factual account of the origin of the cosmos, I I think there's really only two possible explanations for cavemen and related species, whatever they may be. Two possible explanations. Number one, the first is that these apparently human-like species are in fact human and are descended from Adam. That's possibility number one. This is the line that is taken by most uh, young earth creationists. It's the position of the Answers in Genesis organization. Go online to their website and you'll find a lot of articles and videos related to this very question and they're, they're convincing. But this would mean that the dating of the hominid fossils, hominids are the technical term for cavemen, Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon. This would mean that the dating of the hominid fossils is radically wrong and that they are much younger than commonly thought and that they are far more intelligent and advanced than commonly accepted. In other words, the fossils known as Homo erectus, Neanderthal man, and Cro-Magnon man are simply variations of human beings that are descended from Adam. Other more ancient fossils like Australopithecus, there's a fun name to say. Um, You probably have seen Lucy on the news, uh, dug Lucy out of the ground somewhere, Uh, maybe in Indonesia I think it was. Other fossils are simply varieties of primate species and are not human. In favor of this view is the fact that there there is some overlap in the DNA of modern humans and Neanderthals. Genetic research, you're going to see some overlap in the DNA between the two. And that all of the above hominids show signs of human intelligence. They they make stone tools. They use fire. They bury their dead. All right, so explanation number one is that the the most recent of these hominid hominid species, Homo erectus, Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon, are in fact varieties of human beings and descended from Adam. That's, that's explanation number one. It tends to be the young earth explanation. The other explanation, which tends to be the more old earth explanation, is that near human hominids, okay, Homo erectus, Neanderthal man, Cro-Magnon man, are what are known as near human, non-human species, which are now extinct. It says that there were near-human, non-human species created by God according to their kinds prior to the creation of Adam and that even though they bore physical characteristics like opposable thumbs and an upright posture and certain mental capacities like the making of stone tools and the use of fire and the burial of their dead and the drawing of pictures on cave walls, mental capacities that are in some ways similar to modern human beings, that they are not human by the standard of Genesis. In other words, the second explanation would say that the image of God in man, that is what makes man truly human, goes far beyond physicality and mental acuity. 
It's the creation of an immortal soul with personality, morality, and spirituality. In other words, there is a vast difference between Adam, Eve, and their descendants who, according to Genesis 3 and 4, farm, domesticate livestock, reason through abstract moral and ethical questions, am I my brother's keeper? Build cities, forge metals, make music. There's a vast difference between what we find in Genesis 4 and hominids speaking in grunts and scratching out crude drawings on a cave wall in southern France. I think it is all too common to make Adam more primitive than he actually was. He was not primitive, he was perfect. The direct special creation of an entirely new species of creature fashioned by God's own hands, fashioned in God's own likeness, and endued with God's own image. So if you, if you ask my opinion, you may not want to, but I'll tell you, well, I'm committed to the inerrancy of Scripture. That means that there are really only two options available. Either these cavemen, so to speak, are more advanced than we often give them credit for, we've misunderstood their mental capacities, and they are descended from Adam, or they're not human at all. Because man was created in God's own likeness, in God's own image. And the man that we find in Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4, these are not primitive people. Second important truth to draw from these texts. We were created with dominion over all creation. This truth is stated twice in the Genesis account. First, in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then in Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. James Boyce wrote a fantastic paragraph on the topic of dominion, and I can't improve upon it, so I'm just going to read it to you. At the present time, he writes, we have this horrible situation. In his sin, man either tends to dominate and thus violate the creation, subjecting it to his own selfish ends, or else he tends to fall down and worship the creation, not realizing that his debasement is brought about in the process. As the Bible describes them, the man and the woman were made a little lower than the angels, Psalm 8.5. And that is, they were placed between the highest and the lowest beings, between angels and beasts. But it is significant that man is described as being slightly lower than the angels rather than being slightly higher than the beasts. That is, man's privilege is that he is to be a mediating figure, but he is also to be one who looks up rather than down. The unfortunate thing is that when man severs that tie that binds him to God and tries to cast off God's rule. He does not rise up to take God's place as he desires to do. Rather, he sinks to the more bestial level. In fact, he comes to think of himself as a beast, the naked ape, or even worse, a machine. Now, as we've seen, this is exactly what man has done in the naturalistic evolutionary worldview. He's come to view himself as nothing more than an animal, a beast-like machine. But God created us a little lower than the angels, far above the rest of creation. And He granted us dominion, a stewardship over all creation. <clears throat> Allergies are getting to me. 
The dominion which he was granted is a dominion which entails not only a right to rule, but a responsibility to steward. We fail to exercise this dominion when we fail or refuse to take our proper place as lords over creation. We make ourselves indistinct from beasts, which is exactly what evolution does. That's, that's failing to take our dominion. But we also fail in our responsibility to exercise dominion when we exploit the earth as if we owned it rather than were stewards taking care of God's planet. Dominion does not mean the right to do with the earth whatever we, whatever we want. It does not mean that we have the right to plunder its vast resources without regard for its impact upon the earth, the environment as a whole. Evangelicals ought to care deeply about environmental issues, totally apart from a politic of economics. Environmental issues are evangelical issues. They're not just Republican and Democrat issues. They're dominion issues. Now, I'm not suggesting that we ought to stop washing our hair and put on a pair of Birkenstocks and go live in a tree somewhere. I am suggesting that we care for the earth that we've been given, an earth that has been entrusted to us in a stewardship for which we'll be held accountable. See, when I give my sons a gift, I am honored when he cherishes it and takes care of it because he loves the gift and he loves the giver. I'm dishonored when he treats it like trash, steps on it, and I end up having to go and throw it away. Food for thought. The third important truth to draw out of these texts is that we were created male and female. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Confusion abounds in our culture today with regard to sex and gender. Uh, now, I have to use both of those words because although historically sex and gender have been used interchangeably, in recent generations, they've come to denote two wholly separate ideas. In the current vernacular, and this is, you need to know this, this is part of the current debate over who can use which restroom. In the current vernacular, sex refers to one's biological, physiological, and genetic identity as male or female. For instance, the presence of a Y chromosome Higher levels of testosterone than progesterone and estrogen. Male physicality determines one's sex as male. The absence of the Y chromosome, higher levels of progesterone and estrogen than testosterone, and female physicality determines one's sex as female. Gender, on the other hand, refers to the social and cultural role of each sex within a given society. It is a psychological and sociological construct rather than a physical construct. So according to the World Health Organization, quote, gender refers to the socially constructed characteristics of women and men, such as norms, roles, and relationships of and between groups of women and men. It varies from society to society, and can be changed, end quote. So in general, if you want to you get the terminology right, in general, sex refers to whether one is male or female from a biological, physiological standpoint, and gender refers to whether one is masculine or feminine from a social standpoint. Now, our culture tends to view gender as a very fluid notion, subject to change, based upon one's uh, individual internal sense and preference. A transgender person, then, is one who is biologically male, yet identifies as female, or is biologically female, yet identifies as male. Some reject both binary categories altogether, and they call themselves gender-fluid. 
So what bearing does Genesis 1.27 have on this? What does it mean when it says that God created humanity male and female? Is it talking about sex or gender? Well, the answer is both. From beginning to end, the Bible regards both sex and gender as being linked and clearly defined binary categories of humanity. In other words, male and masculine, as the Bible defines it, belong together, and female and feminine, as the Bible defines it, belong together. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. So as we'll see in about three weeks when we cover the institution of the marriage covenant, God designed man and woman, male and female, masculine and feminine, to complement and complete one another in this covenant union. The Bible therefore defines what it means to be masculine and what it means to be feminine, and men and women are called to pursue these biblical ideals. Well now, in a perfect creation, all men would be masculine and all women would be feminine. But, we live after the fall, don't we? in a cursed creation where the natural order is broken. And in this sin-cursed, broken world, some men are born with two X chromosomes. Some women are born with a Y chromosome. As many as one in 1,500 births result in a child that is born with a mixture of male and female physicality. Some men have low levels of testosterone and high levels of progesterone and estrogen. Some women have high levels of testosterone and low levels of progesterone and estrogen. Some children are born into environments where they are abused and neglected and they grow up with varying degrees of sexual and gender confusion. Be careful, First Baptist Nixa in using a broad brush to paint homosexuality and gender confusion and fluidity as a mere choice, as if they could just choose not to be attracted to people of the same sex or choose not to feel a sense of masculinity, masculinity or femininity which does not match their biological sex. I would say that more often than not, it has less to do with a choice and more to do with their fallen brokenness. This psychological, physiological confusion stems from Genesis 3, not from Genesis 1 and 2. It stems from the curse, and the curse has wrought devastating effects upon every single person. And in some people, this is where the curse manifests itself. They find themselves, as they grow up into puberty, with inordinate unnatural desires. Or, when they're born, they find themselves with a confused physicality. One in 1,500. What we need in this discussion is grace and truth. And truth spoken in love. But, the curse though it is the cause of all of this physiological, psychological, emotional brokenness that just devastates this world, it does not alter the design of God nor the call to holiness. So just because someone was born broken or just because brokenness was thrust upon them through circumstances that are no fault of their own, does not mean that we should embrace our brokenness. By the grace of God, through faith in Christ, by the regenerating, sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, we should embrace and pursue wholeness in Christ. So, 
biological men, by grace, through faith, in the power of the Holy Spirit, should pursue biblical masculinity. And biological women should, by grace, through faith, in the regenerating, sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, pursue biblical femininity. We all fall short of God's design, yet every one of us is called to pursue God's design by His grace, by His strength, and in His power. So be gracious to broken people knowing that you're broken yourself. But do not alter the bar of God's design in your graciousness. In the beginning, God created them male and female. Fourth, we were created in the image of God. The imago dei, as the Latin phrase comes to us, as it's been known throughout church history. This is the core, this is the essence of what separates and distinguishes and elevates man from the rest of creation. This is what renders the theory of evolution nonsensical. When God created man, he conferred upon him his image, and man was created in God's likeness. When God formed man, Genesis 2-7, from the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living soul, an image was imparted to man. We are comprised of the same elements, the same matter as is the rest of creation. We are comprised of See if I got this right. Oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, sodium, chlorine, and magnesium. That's what makes you up. The physical parts of you. But there is something else about us that renders us radically different from every other organic thing in the universe. It's the breath of God that made us living souls. It is the image of God which renders us in God's likeness. So what does it mean that we are made in God's image? What makes us like God and different from everything else in creation? I'll give you a hint. It's not something physical. We don't look like God. God doesn't look like anything. He's a spirit, and he has no body like man. Physically, we resemble other mammals. There are certain resemblances to primates or prehistoric hominids. No, we resemble God in that we possess three intangible attributes. Personality, morality, and spirituality. Talk about personality. Personality means that we exist as a self-aware being, possessing knowledge, emotions, and will, all of which are extremely complex. Personality includes the ability to create from abstraction, to think of an image and draw it, to think of a sculpture and make it, to think of a story and write it. Personality involves the ability to reason through complex problems and ethical dilemmas. It includes the ability to love, to feel, to feel powerful and complex and at times even conflicting emotions. It includes the ability to use complex and abstract language. It involves the ability to conceive of time as consisting not just of present but of past and of future. Animals do not have personalities. They have innate and inbred characteristics. They act on the basis of instinct or in response to stimuli. They do not reason. They do not communicate ideas. They do not contemplate philosophy. In the middle of writing this message, I was having a conversation about what makes human beings human 
In other words, what it means to be made in the image of God. And it dawned on me that what this, me and this person were doing at that exact moment, contemplating meaning and communicating ideas through the use of complex and abstract language, illustrated my point perfectly. And that is light years away from what even the most intelligent and relational of animals ever do. It isn't even on the same spectrum. Monkeys out in a jungle somewhere don't gather around on a Sunday morning and listen to 45-minute sermons. They don't write books. They'll never write books. Wayne Grudem wrote about this aspect of the image of God in his systematic theology. He says, quote, Animals sometimes exhibit remarkable behavior in solving mazes or working out problems in the physical world, but they certainly do not engage in abstract reasoning. There is no such thing as the history of canine philosophy, for instance. Nor have any animals since creation developed at all in their understanding of ethical problems or the use of philosophical concepts. No group of chimpanzees will ever sit around the table arguing about the doctrine of the Trinity or the relative merits of Calvinism or Arminianism. In fact, in developing physical or technical skills, we are far different from animals. Beavers still build the same kind of dams they have built for a thousand generations. Birds still build the same kind of nests. Bees still build the same kind of hives. But we continue to develop greater and greater skill and complexity in technology, in agriculture, in science, and in nearly every field of endeavor. End quote. Animals possess intelligence of a sort. Mice can learn a maze. Chimpanzees can communicate in simple sign language. Draw a crude picture if you give them a crayon and a large enough canvas. Animals are even capable of certain emotion, I guess, if you ask dog lovers or cat people. Maybe dog lovers and cat haters. But they do not have personality and they do not possess personhood. They do not sin and they are not judged. Man is of a different metaphysical essence. After all, we're not made in the likeness of other creatures. We're made in the likeness of God. Secondly, we would possess the attribute of morality, which includes both the ability and the responsibility to make moral judgments and to act in accordance with that which is right and good. Animals don't think in terms of right and wrong. They act by instinct and in response to stimuli. I'm hungry, gonna go kill and eat. Only humans have the ability to reason through moral issues and decide what is right and what is wrong. In fact, we are responsible to do so and we will be held accountable for failing to do so. The very fact of judgment provides us with an incredible sense of dignity. God does not judge the animal kingdom. They do not sin. They cannot reason through morality. They are not persons. Finally, we possess the attribute of spirituality. Contrary to what naturalism teaches, man is not comprised entirely of matter. He is not merely a complex machine. His thoughts and his emotions are not merely the result of chemical processes or hormonal influences. Every man and every woman is possessed of an immortal, immaterial soul that lives on even after the body dies and disintegrates. And it is because of this soul or spirit that we may relate to God in prayer and in worship. There is no religious impulse in the animal kingdom. They don't build idols and bow before them. Why? Because they're not living souls. Now as we'll see in Genesis chapter 3, the image of God in man has been shattered by sin. Like a broken mirror. We don't reflect the, the image of God very well anymore like looking in a shattered mirror and it's refracting in all of these wrong directions. 
You can still make something out about the likeness of God when you look at man, but it's, it's only through this spider web of cracks. Every one of us, every one of us is mentally, relationally, morally, and spiritually broken. Our mind and our heart, our thoughts and our affections are bent towards evil and unrighteousness and our spirit is born into this world dead in trespasses and sins. But God sent Christ into this world to redeem sinners, broken sinners, through his death on the cross. And Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and he sent his Holy Spirit to regenerate sinners, to awaken them from spiritual death, and to sanctify sinners, to begin to restore all of those broken cracks in the image of God's glory, so that one day we would be fully restored into the glory of what he created us to be. Through the Spirit, we are being remade into the image of God. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed into the image of His Son so that He, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. You, You were directly, specially created by God. You were entrusted with dominion over all creation. You were created male and female with a mandate to be either masculine or feminine as the Bible defines it. And you were created in the image of God with personality, morality, and spirituality. That image was shattered in the fall but it is being remade into the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in those who believe. Why? So that we, and only redeemed man, may glorify God and enjoy Him forever and therefore fulfill the great and glorious purpose for which we were created. 